to study the way I intended to. I was um, had some stuff to do for the our state mission board, and I was doing some stuff for that, and I made a couple of made a visit, uh, and then I got kind of caught up in some other things, looking around and looked up, and it was almost time for service to start, and so I, I didn't have the chance to prepare like I should. But I, I think I know the passage. I mean, I've read it before, so it should be okay. We're in Hebrews 11. Um, and I think if I remember right from last week, we ended at verse 12, so we should be in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 13. I, I don't know what page that is in the Pew Bible, uh, but if you uh, if you find it, stand on the reading of God's Word. Hebrews 11, 13, it says, And all these died in faith without receiving the promises. But, having seen and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of the country which they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come tonight, Lord, and we we need you, Father, to strengthen us. We need you, Father, to speak into our lives. We need you to take this word and make it living and active. Uh, Use it, Father, to make us more like Jesus. Use it, Father, to make us have more of the kind of living faith you want us to have. Fill me with your spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help us tonight to just have ears to hear what you have for us. We ask in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so, actually, I didn't. I did study today. But can you imagine how terrible it would have been if I hadn't? Can you imagine the ter- how terrible it would be if you guys came to church... I had not prepared and I was just going to kind of wing it and make it up as I went along. That would be terribly embarrassing for me, humiliating even. And I can't help but think it would not be something other than a form of cruel and unusual punishment for you to have to hear the vain ramblings of somebody just kind of going through the motions of trying to preach the sermon. Yet, honestly, that is kind of how many people live their day-to-day lives. They just sort of wing it. They drift from day Today, following the routines they've gotten uh, accustomed to doing. There's no real plan for where they're heading or what they're doing. And, and worse yet, they really have no idea of what Jesus wants them to do or how Jesus wants them to live. So what we're going to do tonight with this passage is we're going to talk about the idea of vision, something of uh, vision. Now, vision I'm talking about, not like the prophetic visions where you see the future But vision is something you read about. If you read leadership books or if you read books that deal with having purpose in life, all of them talk about the need to have a vision for your life, a vision of what you're going to do. Now, virtually every book and every article uses a different concept, a different description of what vision is. For our purpose tonight, the one I'm going to use is the one I like best. Uh, And that is vision is the the picture of the future, future that produces passion. And I'm going to use this tonight because it goes best with the idea of living by faith and and the passage we're studying. 
Most of the definitions of vision are, for lack of a better term, they're just secular. You could take them and apply them with anything. I have a a vision for my business, a vision for my physical health, a vision for my finances. That's not a bad thing. That's just the way they are. Uh, But this definition of vision, I think, goes best with the idea of God's promises and living by faith. And we see this idea of a picture of the future produces passion in this passage, right? So all of these people it talks about, and it's talking about all the people in Hebrews 11, they... They, nev- they never saw God's promises fulfilled, right? They, they died in faith, but they never received the promises. Now, despite the fact they never received them, they never came to fruition in their lives, they saw them and they welcomed them. And the idea of welcomed is they embraced them and they made a confession concerning them. Everything they did in verses 13 through 16, and again, really in the whole chapter, They did because they had a a picture of the future, God's promises, and it produced a passion within them. They saw what God had promised. They saw it as as though it were there. They embraced it as real. They confessed it with their lives and, and they lived differently because of it. Now, this vision, this picture of the future they had, it wasn't one they came up with. It was one that was given to them by God through the promises He had given them. And this is what I'm calling for our context tonight. It's the title of the message. A visionary faith. When you read about their lives from the Old Testament, or you read about their lives in this chapter, even just in these few verses we're looking at tonight, you realize they weren't winging it. They weren't drifting through their day-to-day life. They knew where they were going. They knew what they were doing. They knew what God wanted them to do. They knew what God, how God wanted them to live. And, and they were determined to do those things and live that way. They had a visionary faith. And as I studied this and have read about it uh, this week, I think we too should have a visionary faith. Just as they lived in light of coming promises that they had not yet seen fulfilled, we too have to kind of live that way. There are promises God has given to us. We've not yet seen them come to pass. And yet, despite the fact we haven't seen them come to pass, the way we're supposed to live is we're supposed to live in faith and live as though we have seen them, confess and and live differently Because of it. A visionary faith causes us, it leads us to live in light of the unseen promises of God, just like the people in this chapter did. So our, our, our key thought for tonight, a visionary faith sees and acts on the unseen promises of God. Now that... This is what we see in this passage, and again, in the entire chapter of Hebrews 11. They saw the promises, but not the fulfillment, and yet they still lived as though they were true. And that's what we're to do. We see these promises, these what Peter calls great and precious promises of God. We haven't seen them all come to fruition yet, but we see them, we believe them, we confess they're true, and so we live differently because of this. 
So to have a visionary faith, we must see and act on the unseen promises of God. And, and this passage gives us what I would say are three ways to live if we have a visionary faith. First is, we live as citizens of heaven. Right, so, verse 13. They died in faith, they never received the promises, but they saw them and they welcomed them from a distance, and they confessed that because of these promises, they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now the word used for stranger... It meant a person who dwells in one place while his home is somewhere else. It would be what you might call a resident alien. right? So for our purposes, you might think of someone who, who is from Germany and they come to America, but not just on a short-term visit, but they're going to come here. They're not coming as citizens, but they're coming long-term. They're going to, to stay here a while. They're, they're probably going to get a job and a visa and all of those kind of things. Rent an apartment sometime, put down roots, but they're still going to be German citizens. They're not going to become Americans because they're going home eventually. But they're here and it's for a long time, but this isn't their home. Now, with this, they also says they were exiles. Now, exile is more temporary than that of a stranger. Exile, some translations may say pilgrim. Um, and what this carries with it is the idea of being a, a visitor or a sojourner, right? It's, you're going to be there for a short time. You're going to be there for a visit, but not long enough to rent an apartment, not long enough to get a job or, or lease a house, just someone who's there just for a very little while. Maybe on vacation, but not making this their home. Now, what's interesting is that they confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Right? They weren't strangers and exiles in Babylon. They were, but this isn't what it was talking about. They weren't strangers and exiles where the Assyrians took them and exiled them to. They were, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about even Abraham, who went to the land God had given him, saw the land, saw the promise God had given him this land, and yet he lived there as a stranger and as an exile. It pictures that no matter where we are on the earth, as disciples of Jesus, this world is not our home. That no matter where we're from or where we're living or what we're doing, we are living here and now on the earth as a stranger and an exile. That like the people in this chapter, if we have this sort of visionary faith, we live here, but we consider somewhere else to be our home. Now, this is how they lived, and God's word is clear. This is how we're to live. But as disciples of Jesus, we're more than citizens of earth. And we're more than citizens of America. We are citizens of heaven. And, and that is our ultimate home. And we are to live not as earthlings or not as Americans but as citizens of the kingdom of God, citizens 
of heaven. And, and, and I get this not just from this passage. We, we see this in multiple places. In Philippians 3, Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. We live here, sure. But we're citizens of heaven. That's our ultimate home. And again, to me, I was thinking about it. When I was in the army, they stationed me in Berlin. And so I got mail in Berlin. I lived in Berlin. I shopped in Berlin. I I, I had German money. I had a, a home there where I lived. But ultimately, Berlin was not my home. It was not where I was from. It's not where I was going back to. My my home was back here. And this is the picture being painted in Hebrews and in this. Yes, we live here. But our ultimate citizenship is not here. Our ultimate citizenship, our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of heaven. Now... Again, as as Americans in Germany, there were certain rules that applied to us that didn't apply to regular Germans. Right? Germany made things legal that were not legal in America. The German drinking age, for instance, was 16. But if you were an American soldier stationed in Berlin and you were under 21, it was still against American law for you to drink. And so you could not go and drink, whether in the barracks or even out on the economy. It was against American law. And even though you were in Berlin, you were held to the standard of American law. In America, we have like vibrant caffeine pills. They had some in Germany too, but they actually had illegal amphetamines in them. And it was legal to go buy them in Germany in their pharmacies, but it was illegal for American American soldiers to purchase them and use them. If we took them, and if there was a, a drug test, and that came up, even though we bought it legally, we would be kicked out of the army for it. We lived in Germany, but we were held to the standards of America. That picture should inform us about this. We are citizens of heaven and not earth. And so we should live as citizens of heaven and not earth. We should talk like citizens of heaven and not earth. We should have the values of citizens of heaven and not earth. We should engage in the pleasures of the citizens of heaven and not earth. We should live by the laws of heaven and not by the laws of the earth. We should worship the God of heaven and not the gods of this earth. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, and that should be reflected in every aspect of our lives. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what Hebrews is talking about. Now, Paul's point is even made more powerful when we look at the context and the verses above it. For many walk, of whom I told you, I often told you, And now tell you, even as I weep, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, 
whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things. Now, with this, I'm going to kind of walk us through this backwards. So first, Paul has talked about being citizens of heaven. But there are some, he says, who have their minds on earthly things. And the idea that they have their minds is they have set their minds. Right? It's not earthly thoughts went through their head. It's earthly thoughts were the focus of their mind. They, they intentionally set their minds on it. They focused on the things of earth rather than the things of heaven, rather than the things of Jesus. Now thinking about things on this life and only and mostly about things on this life would be thinking about the accumulation of money and possessions. It would be thinking about doing whatever it took to make us comfortable in life. Uh, it, it would be focusing on, on, on ourselves and doing whatever we wanted to do at the expense of everything else. Now, that's very much an, an earthly mindset, isn't it? I mean, that's not necessarily American. That's American and Canadian and German and, and everywhere. If you live on this earth, those are the sort of mind focuses people have. And it doesn't sound like such bad things. But look at what's right before it. These people who have their minds on earthly things, they, they glory in things that are their shame. Well, what does that mean? Well, to understand that, we have to go back one more. Whose God is their appetite. Now, what it means that their God is their appetite is their physical desires are what drives their life. If they want to say it, they say it. If they want to do it, they do it. If they want it, that's what drives them. It's not necessarily their hunger like for food, physical food. It just speaks of all of their appetites, of all of their passions. If they want it, they're going to do it. If they want to do it, they're going to. They, these people make fulfilling their desires, their appetites, the priority and the focus of their lives. Now, again, if you if you make satisfying your appetites the focus of your life, you kind of rejoice in that. You you glory in what you have. If it's in sexual things and how many people you've slept with and and all of the stuff, you you glory in that. But the day is going to come when those who have their God as their appetite, they are going to be ashamed of what they glory in right now. And in the end, I think that day probably will not come completely until Jesus comes back. So imagine you glory in your ability to fulfill your physical appetites. And then Jesus comes back. And you have lived your life devoted to your physical appetites rather than Him. You will be ashamed on that day. That's the point. He, he says their, their end is destruction. Now, their end being destruction, I think, clearly refers to they're going to face the, the judgment of God. He calls them the enemies of the cross of Christ. Now the idea of them being enemies of the cross of Christ. I don't think in this context it means they oppose the preaching of the gospel. 
I don't think that's who these people are. Rather than these people being those who, if you try to preach the gospel, they're like, la, 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 shut up, we don't want to hear you. These are the people that when you preach the gospel to someone, they say, well, what about, what about that person? Right? The, the idea that they are the enemies of the gospel, enemies of the cross, is that they, they themselves, their lives, become a stumbling block to other people coming to know Jesus. The way they live is in opposition to the message and the mission of the cross of Christ. And the last thing about them, and this is, will I think help explain it. Paul weeps over them. Why does Paul weep? Especially if they are false teachers, right? If they are people who try to suppress the preaching of the gospel, why does Paul weep over them? Paul has no qualms about calling false teachers out even by name in his letters. Paul at one point talks about the Judaizers, the Galatians, and says, I wish they would mutilate themselves. Paul didn't weep over them. Who is Paul weeping over in this? He's weeping over professing believers. He's weeping over people who profess to be disciples of Jesus. And yet, they are really enemies of the cross by the life they live. And they demonstrate they are enemies of the cross by the fact that their God is their appetite. And they glory in shameful things. And they do all of this because their minds are firmly set on earthly things. They profess to be disciples of Jesus and yet they are so at home here on this earth. They haven't let go or they wouldn't let go of the things of Listoff. So they can live for the things of the next. So in my mind, think about people like Demas. Who the Bible says abandoned Paul and and seemingly Christ as well. Because why? He loved the things of this world. This would be like the church at Laodicea. Who had accumulated vast wealth. And an easy life. But they had missed out on the true riches Jesus wanted to give them. And they were blind and wretched and miserable and naked. But thought they were good to go. An old hymn says this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. If we were to sing that tonight, would we mean it? Would we be singing truth in that moment? Or is this a more accurate description of who we are in the lives we live? You know, we're all probably familiar with Romans 12 too, saying not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And, and there is the message paraphrase has one of the most convicting renderings of this I, I've ever seen. And we're just going to look at the fir- that red part. Don't become 
so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Man, that is challenging. Have you ever really sat down and looked at what God's Word says? This is what a disciple of Jesus is like. This is how they think. This is what they think on. This is how they talk. This is what they talk about. These are what their values are, their priorities. This is their morality. This is how they use their their time and their talents and their tithe. This is what it means to be a, a, a husband, a dad, a mom, a wife, a, a child, a just a disciple of Jesus. And then look at that and say this is not just like what culture has told us from the church, but this is exactly what the Bible says. And then look at what we do. And then compare the two. I mean, if we were to do that, we, not I'm not saying y'all get your acts in order. I'm saying if we were to do that. And we took the time to go through the just the New Testament. We don't even have to get into the Old Testament. Just New Testament. This is how you talk. This is how you forgive. This is how you turn the other cheek. This is how you deny yourself. This is what you think on. This is what you do with your time. This is how you treat other humans made in the image of God. And you wrote all of those sort of things down on one side. And then in just ruthless, brutal, bloody honesty, wrote down what we do on the other side. Would they mesh? Or would they butt heads? And if they butt heads, so many times what we do is we say, well, yeah, but the Bible then and now and you can't. And the question is, our reasonings for why they do this rather than this, are they because of what we see in here? Or is it because we have become so well adjusted to our culture, we fit in without even really thinking about it. That's a challenging thought. I find it deeply, deeply convicting. Are we, you and I, are we strangers and exiles on the earth whose citizenship is in heaven? Or are we at home on the earth? If we have a visionary faith, we will say as the author of Hebrews, we are pilgrims and exiles and we have no continuing city right here. But we are seeking one to come. A visionary faith sees and acts on the unseen promises of God. And this is demonstrated as we live as citizens of heaven and not of earth. Secondly, if we have a visionary faith, we will live for Jesus no matter what. Verse 15, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country of which they left, they they would have had an opportunity to return. So any of these people could have gone back to the land they came from At any time. 
Abraham at any moment could have left the land God led him to and gone back to Ur of the Chaldeans. Isaac could have gone back to Rebekah's family. Jacob could have gone back to Laban, his father-in-law, and worked for him. At any point, any of these people could have said, I quit, and gone back to where they were before God began to burden them and bother them and lead them to go out and live by faith. But they didn't. That they didn't, even though they died in faith without receiving the promises. They, they didn't, even though we know from our reading of their lives in the Old Testament, that it oftentimes it was difficult. Right? None of them had this sort of super easy life. It wasn't a scenario where God called them and they moved out and heaven and earth moved every step they went and life was easy. It was challenging and difficult for all of them, especially as they did not receive the fulfillment of the promises. And yet they never, ever quit. They never, ever went back. And the reason they didn't go back is because of their visionary faith. They, they saw them. They welcomed or embraced them. And they knew it was at a distance, but they confessed they were true. And they would live in light of those promises. Now, they could have quit, but they would have missed out on everything God had for them. They would have missed out on all God wanted to do in them and through them. And for them. And I'm convinced the same is true for us. We always miss out on what God wants to do in us, through us, and for us when we quit. And my conviction of this is based upon God's Word. Let's not become discouraged in doing good. For in due time, we will reap if we do not become weary. And become weary there doesn't mean tired. It means quit. We're told not to grow weary in doing good because we will reap a harvest if we keep on, if we don't lose heart, if we don't give up. So if we have faith and we keep going, we will reap. But what if we don't? What if in a moment of hardship and of adversity, we give up and go back? We miss the harvest. We miss all God wants to do in us and through us and for us. Let me read you a powerful illustration of this from the Journal of John Wesley. Sunday a.m., May 5th, preached at St. Anne's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday p.m., May 5th, preached at St. John's, deacons said get out and stay out. Sunday a.m., May 12th, preached at St. Jude's. Can't go back there either. Sunday p.m., May 12th, preached at St. George's, kicked out again. Sunday a.m., May 19th, preached at St. Somebody Else's. Deacons called a special meeting, said I couldn't return. Sunday p.m., May 19th, preached on the street, kicked off the street. Sunday a.m., May 26th, Preached out in a meadow. Chased out of the meadow when a bull was turned loose during the service. 
Sunday a.m. June 2nd. Preached at the edge of town. Kicked off the highway. Sunday p.m. June 2nd. Afternoon service. Preached in the pasture. 10,000 people came. Now that's a true account of a month of John Wesley's life. Rejected eight times in a month. Can you imagine how hard that must have been? Kicked out, kicked off the street. Special meeting called just to decide you can never come back. That happened. Over and over and over again. But he kept going. From what I know of John Wesley's life, he kept going because he had a visionary faith. He believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit could save a soul and change a life. That was his focus. That's what he believed. Now, this was an unseen promise in Wesley's life. Because the church of England at that time was as dead as the church in Sardis in Revelation 3. Souls weren't being saved. Lives weren't being changed. The gospel was not making a difference in England. But but Wesley read God's word and saw the promises and believed it could happen. Believed it should happen. And so he let that picture of souls being saved and lives being changed through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit produce a passion in him to preach the gospel and not give up no matter how many times he was rejected. Wesley was highly educated. At any point, he could have gone back. He could have gone back to the life he lived before. He could have gone back into the Anglican church. He he could have given up. But he kept on rejection after rejection. Now, we don't know what happened to those 10,000 people, or I don't know what happened to those 10,000 people who came on June 2nd. But I do know from the life of Wesley that thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ through the revivals God started through Wesley. I know Christianity in, in many cases spread to parts of America where it had not yet gone because of what God did through John Wesley. What God did in the life of John and Charles Wesley would have not happened had they become discouraged in their doing good and had given up in the moment of adversity. What do we do when our service and devotion to Jesus gets hard? What do we do when we're rejected by people because of our service and devotion to Jesus? What do we do if in our service and devotion to Jesus things don't work out the way we think they're supposed to? The easy thing to do is to quit, right? To go back. Because to go back is always waiting on us. But is the easy thing the right thing? Is that what we're supposed to do? Something I realized as I was studying this is how we respond to adversity in our service and devotion to Jesus says a lot about the kind of faith we have. Proverbs 24 and 10 says if we faint in the day of adversity, it's because our strength is small. Wouldn't it be accurate to say 
that if we quit in the day of adversity, it's also because our faith is small. Now, I don't know about you. I find this challenging. And something I have found interesting is as I find it more challenging the older I get. In my younger days, when I was in my 20s and my 30s, adversity and my service and devotion to Jesus didn't really bother me all that much. I kind of expected it. I was, I mean, I didn't enjoy it, but it never occurred to me to give up because of it either. But now in my late 40s, I find adversity in my service and devotion to Jesus to be a stronger kick in the gut than I did when I was younger. I more fully understand the temptation to give up because what's the point? What's the point if I'm going to continually be ran off? What's the point if no one's ever going to be saved? What's the point if these things aren't going to happen? I see and hear are going to happen. These sort of temptations, these feelings, they get stronger with each passing year, not weaker like I would have imagined they would have. I'm not sure what that says about me, but them's the facts as they say. As disciples of Jesus, we we must have endurance. We see this in Hebrews 12, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. But something I I don't know that I'd connected to before looking here, is often I've, I've done endurance as suck it up, knuckle it under, and just don't give up. And to be sure, that's a part of it. But I think what we see here is endurance also must come from a place of faith in the unseen promises of God. We must believe the unseen promises of God so strongly, so fully, that we act on them and continue to act upon them, even if they don't come to pass. And we do this day after day, week after week, year after year, until we die in faith or Jesus calls us home. This is a visionary faith. And then lastly, so we live as citizens of heaven. We live for Jesus no matter what. We live for God's approval. Verse 16, that as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And here's the phrase I'm going to key in on for our service tonight. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God is not ashamed to be called their God. That's an interesting phrase. Their visionary faith enabled them to live in a certain way, do the things we've been talking about tonight and and more things in this chapter. And the result of their living faith, their visionary faith, is God was not ashamed to be called their God. Now with this, we understand they missed out on any number of things by living for God, right? I mean, there were any number of things they, they didn't do because they were pursuing the vision God had given them, because they were trying to live for the promises God had laid out for them. And and I'm reasonably sure they did this because this world was not their home. 
And that many of the things they did not do were not necessarily bad things. They just understood they weren't best things. They weren't the things that were God's best. Their their visionary faith moved them to live so they would hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. And that was a driving force in their life. Being sure that they received God's approval. Not not this stuff, whatever it may be. Not what other people thought of the things they were or weren't doing. But hearing God say, well done. And we see, of course, we know in verse 2, this is how they received God's approval. It was their faith that moved them. And so they did. And I've already alluded to well done, so I can't help but mention the story in Matthew 25, the, the parable. The master calls his servants and he gives them a certain amount of talents based upon their abilities. And then he sends them out to do business until he returns. And then he, he, by giving them according to their ability, he set them up for success. All of them could have been successful. And he goes on for his time and he, he does what he went to do. And he comes back, he, he calls them in to give an account for their lives. How they had used the, the stuff he gave them. Two of them had used it well and they were told, well done. Good and faithful servant. Familiar story. And if I were to go around the room and ask, do you want to live for the day when you hear Jesus say, well done, thou good and faithful servant? We would all say, yes, of course, that's what we want. But, and this is the key, do we live like we're seeking God's approval? Or do we live like we're seeking earthly pleasure and earthly treasure? To live for God's approval takes up, requires us to take seriously what it says in Hebrews 12. So turn there real quick. Just one verse. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily ensnare entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, so much I would like to talk about, but we only have time for this one part. There's a race set before us, and the call for us is to lay aside everything that entangles us, that slows us down. And, and the things that could entangle us and slow us down are described in two ways. In, in the New American Standard, obstacle, some, most translations say weight, and sin. Now, sin, we understand. Sin is sin. The Bible says thou shalt not, and we shall. That's sin. And we can't run the race God has set before us and receive His approval by doing the things God has said we shall not do. But, but what is an obstacle or what is a weight is something entirely different. These are things that are not necessarily sinful, but hinder us in running the race Jesus has set before us. They slow us down. They pull us off track. They, they do something to keep us from truly running with endurance the race set before us. And what we're told to do is, if there is something in your life that is a, a hindrance to running this race, rid yourself of it. Most translations will say lay aside 
I like rid yourself because the picture isn't lay aside. The picture is lay aside. Rid it from our lives. Don't set it down here where I can come back and pick it up. Throw it away. Get it as far out of my life as I possibly can so that I can run with endurance. Now, what this requires of me is to value the approval of God more than I value this obstacle. It requires me to value the approval of God more than I value what people are going to say. Because listen, you you start to, to get rid of weights in your life, of these obstacles, and lay them aside and say, I'm going to get rid of them. There are going to be people, well-meaning disciples of Jesus, professing believers who will say, well, don't get carried away. You can't get crazy with this Jesus thing. You've got to have balance in your life. You can get too carried away. And if you value their opinion, you will pick it back up and put it back in your pocket. But if you value God's approval more, you will leave it over there and lose their respect and say, I don't care what they think. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. To live for God's approval is to say hearing well done is more valuable than any weight, any obstacle, any sin. And so I am going to rid it from my life, no matter how hard that may be, no matter what anyone else thinks. And I am going to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Years ago, I listened to an audio book. And the author asked a question. And it was something that was really, it it messed with my head. He said, this is something that as disciples of Jesus, we should ask ourselves all the time. And and here was the question. Is what I'm doing right now what I would want to be doing when Jesus comes back? And I I mean, I had never, never even thought that way before I heard that. So I went a week, just a week. Before I did anything that week, I asked myself that question. And you'd be amazed at how many non-sinful things I didn't do. Because that's not what I wanted to be doing when Jesus came back. I was surprised at the way it reprioritized my life. I've gotten out of the habit of doing that, but after sermon today and the the way it convicted me in preparing it, I'm going to start doing it again. And then based upon what we looked at here, I'm going to ask myself another question as well. Does what I'm doing right now demonstrate I'm living for God's approval or earthly treasure and pleasure? Now these, again, those are difficult. It takes effort. Intentionality on our part to do those things. And whether or not we do them in so many ways, it will demonstrate what we value. Do we value God's approval and being doing what Jesus wants us to do? Or do we value earthly pleasure and treasure or what others may think? A visionary faith sees and acts on the unseen promises of God and this leads us to live for God's approval. One last thing and we'll close. And I wanted to mention this. 
We have something the people of Hebrews 11 did not have. We have a cross and an empty tomb. And the Bible says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? For as many as the promises of God are in him in Christ, they are yes. Therefore through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. Jesus, through his death and resurrection, is the yes and the amen to all of God's promises. Knowing God didn't waver to keep the very first promise he gave to mankind, that of a redeemer that would crush the serpent's head, even though it meant the terrible death of his son, it leads us to say if he kept that promise, he'll keep all the others too. We have far more hope, far more assurance than they did. We don't need more faith. And we don't need more evidence. We need to act on the mustard seed faith we already have. And we have it. We wouldn't be here. And we don't need more evidence. We just need to believe the cross is what God said it meant. And the empty tomb is really empty. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and devotion. We thank you for the cross and the empty tomb and the hope it gives us. We thank you to know that if you kept that promise, you'd keep all the others as well. Help us to keep this in mind. Help us to believe these great and precious unseen promises are ours through Christ. And let this influence the way we live our lives, how we act, everything, Father, every aspect of our lives. Help us to have this sort of a living, visionary faith. Let us see. Let us see you do great and wonderful things in us and through us and for us. To help us become more like Jesus. To pull our prodigals back to Christ. To advance your kingdom. Guyman and Goodwill, Hooker and beyond, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're dismissed.